welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, January the 12th, 2023. I'm Ben Stein, and we'll go ahead and we'll start off with the uh, news from the Globe Gazette. Um, Some highlights here. Biden team finds more docs. Pearl Harbor survivor marks 105th birthday. Guitar great Jeff Beck dies and hot off the wire. Uh, On this version of Hot Off the Wire, two New York City hospitals have reached a tentative contract agreement with thousands of striking nurses, ending a walkout that disrupted patient care. The deal will see nurses return to work Thursday. President Joe Biden's legal team has discovered additional documents containing classification markings. A person who spoke to the AP Wednesday on condition of anonymity says the legal team found the additional material at a second location. Thousands of flights across the United States were canceled or delayed after a system that offers safety information to pilots failed. Joseph Eskenazi, the oldest living survivor of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, celebrated his upcoming 105th birthday at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. A guitar virtuoso who pushed the boundaries of blues, jazz, and rock and roll, Jeff Beck has died. He was 78. In sports, the Nuggets and Celtics improved their win streaks, a career night in college ball, and the Ravens are keeping an eye on Lamar Jackson. Local Republican leaders in New York are calling for the immediate resignation of their new GOP congressman, George Santos. Santos is facing multiple investigations by prosecutors over his personal and campaign finances and lies about his resume and family heritage. Planes are stuck on the ground for hours across the United States on Wednesday, leading to thousands of canceled and delayed flights after a government system used to give pilots safety and other information broke down overnight. Bill Safety Damar Hamlin has been released from a hospital in Buffalo after his doctors said they completed a series of tests a little over a week after he went into cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated during a game at Cincinnati. The First Lady's office says Jill Biden's surgery to remove a potentially cancerous lesion uh, above her right eye is proceeding well and as expected. Around 25,000 UK ambulance workers have gone on strike as they walked out for the second time since December in an ongoing dispute with the government overpay. Russia will send up a new capsule next month to bring back three space station astronauts whose original ride home was damaged. The switch in capsules means the two Russians and one American will remain several extra months at the International Space Station. House Republicans have opened their long-promised investigation into President Joe Biden and his family. They are wielding the power of their majority to demand information from the Treasury Department and former Twitter executives as they lay the groundwork for public hearings. Harvey Weinstein is asking New York's highest court to overturn his 2020 rape conviction, arguing that the judge betrayed his right to a fair trial by succumbing to the pressure of the Me Too movement. 
The Supreme Court is allowing New York to continue to enforce, for now, a sweeping new law banning guns from sensitive places, such as schools, playgrounds, and Times Square, and increasing training requirements. With that, we'll move into our first local article. This entitled Davenport Man Saved by Team Effort and On-Site Amputation at King's Material in Eldridge. From Tom Louie. Derek Oldfather has a stump where his leg used to be. He is happy, and many say lucky, to be alive. From his hospital bed in Iowa City, Oldfather recounted how he became trapped in a conveyor belt on December 28th. More people than he could count or remember helped him live through a horrifying four-hour ordeal that ended with an amputation in a sand-filled pit at King's Material in Eldridge, which supplies concrete, masonry, and other landscaping products and services. The 30-year-old uh, is alive today because of a because of the quick actions of co-workers as well as the incredible effort of the Eldridge Fire Department, Eldridge Police Officers, Paramedics, from Medic EMS, Scott County Sheriff's Deputies, Air Care Emergency Transport, medical staff, and a two-man surgical team from University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. I think about what all those people did for me, Old Father said. I think about how they all saved my life. I think about it every day. The day after he told his story, Old Father was released from University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Old Father had been working at King's Material for just a month or more. It wasn't my first time working there, he said. I had to work there on a project about eight years ago, but that project was all outdoors. This time I was inside, and I spent a lot of time in the pits. That's what we call the spots where the trucks come in and dump. They dump rock in one pit and sand in the other. I was down in the sand pit because the conveyor belt kept getting jammed up. I was going down and digging the belt free so it would run. Old Father didn't mind his time in the pits. He spent most of Wednesday, December 27th, digging out the conveyor belt. When more digging was required the next day, he enlisted the help of a co-worker named Freddy. It was just after 1 p.m. when Old Father and Freddy descended three flights of stairs into the pits. We were down there, each of us, on a different side of the belt, and I was explaining to him what we were doing, Old Father said, and that's when the toe of my boot got caught in the belt. The conveyor belt pulled in his boot, then his ankle. He screamed out to Freddy, who grabbed him around his shoulders and tried to pull him free from the conveyor belt, but it was too strong. I remember thinking I'm going to die, and then I told Freddy to go get help, he said. Old Father remembered something else happened, happening in the moments his leg was being dragged into the middle of the conveyor belt and crushed. I don't know how to tell this, really, but there was a moment where I went completely calm, and I knew what I needed to do, he said. I reached up and pulled the emergency string that is over the entire belt. That stopped the belt. Then I got on my radio, and I screamed for help. At the same time Old Father was screaming for his life, Freddy ran the three flights of stairs that led out of the pit and into the main floor. There he found Eddie, the maintenance man, who just heard Old Father's frantic plea on the radio. Eddie called 911. It was 1.17 p.m. From there, he made his way to Old Father. Eddie saw me, and he just burst out crying, but he helped me. 
He got it together and told me I would be okay, old father said. I felt all this warmth on my leg and I realized it was blood. I realized I was going to bleed to death. I said to Eddie, I'm going to die down here, aren't I? And he said, no. And then I realized we needed to stop the blood. I asked him to push his belt around my leg and that is what he did. Freddie and Eddie were the first of many people to help save old father's life that afternoon. Thursday, December 28th, 1.17 p.m. Seconds after Eddie made the 911 call from his cell phone, officers from the Eldridge Police Department, Scott County Sheriff's Department deputies, and firefighters from the Eldridge Fire Department were dispatched to King's Material, 3800 South 1st Street. Old Father had somehow remained conscious after his lower leg was dragged into the conveyor belt. He said he could lean up and look down at the bottom of his boot. He knew he was in big trouble. What the first responders found at the scene was described by Chuck Gibson as something I don't think any of us had ever seen. Gibson is a quality and education manager for Medic EMS. He's 48 years old, has spent 28 years as a paramedic, and has served as Medic EM's scene manager that day. You always think you've seen it all. Then you haven't seen it all, Gibson said. My job, once I got there, was to make sure the scene was safe for the first responders. We were essentially underground, so my job was to find out that the air was safe and there weren't any conditions that were going to endanger the police, firefighters, or paramedics down there with the young man. What struck Gibson was the level of coordination between the various agencies that responded to the 911 call. An Eldridge police officer immediately called in air care. The paramedics and firefighters were making the young man comfortable. They had placed multiple tourniquets to stop blood flow and an IV was established, Gibson said. We were able to talk with old father. He was conscious, so that helped a lot. And then the Eldridge fire chief made an important call. Chief Keith Schneckloth, 42, had been a part of the all-volunteer Eldridge Fire Department for two decades. He was working in Stockton, Iowa, when he heard the emergency call and an Eldridge police officer call for a helicopter transport. I knew something was up, and I made the decision to get to the scene, Schneckloth said. When I got there, the patient had been stabilized. They had stopped the bleeding. The discussion at that point was disassembling the machine to free the patient. I asked everyone to step back for a second and regroup because when I looked at the scene, my first impression was that a medical procedure would be required to free the patient. Fairly quickly, it was evident that a field amputation would be required. After climbing the three flights out of the pit because he couldn't get cell phone reception, Schneckloth caught his breath and called Genesis Health System in Davenport. He spoke to some physicians he knew. They needed some pictures, Schneckloth said. So we made another trip down the stairs and another trip back to send them. The discussion quickly turned to what they called the Med one surgical team out of the University of Iowa hospitals. The doctors at Genesis texted me a number, so I called it. Schneckloth was connected to Dr. Azimuddin Ahmed and Dr. Patrick McGonagill, the men who would amputate old father's left leg below the knee at about 4 p.m. Ahmed graduated from Pleasant Valley High School in 1992, specializes in emergency medicine, and serves as a clinical professor in the University of Iowa Hospitals Department of Emergency Medicine. McGonagill is an acute care physician and is a clinical associate professor at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. 
The two physicians were roughly 45 minutes from King's material while Old Father and his rescuers waited. Paramedics administered pain medication and did what they could to prepare for a field amputation. Gibson marveled at how fortunate it was that Schneckloff called Genesis and the fact that doctors there knew about a mobile surgical team out of University of Iowa hospitals and clinics. From the first responders to making that call to the surgical team that showed up, all of the things went right that day to save that young man's life, Gibson said. A lot of trained people did their jobs and worked together. It was pretty amazing. Old Father didn't feel the pain of being trapped in the conveyor belt until after the paramedics arrived. It seemed like only five minutes, maybe less, from the time Eddie came down until the paramedics and firemen got there, Old Father said. We had tried to get my leg loose before they got there, and the pain was unbelievable. I started freaking out. I couldn't help it. I knew if I didn't get out from there, I was going to bleed out right there. I kept saying, I'm going to die down here, and Eddie kept trying to tell me things would be okay. The paramedics administered 25 cubic centimeters of fentanyl to try to ease his pain. They hit me with 25 cc's again, old father said. Then they were out of pain meds for the next 35 or 40 minutes. I started begging them to just cut me out of the belt. I just wanted out. Then they hit me with some ketamine. I went to another world. I thought I was in a cube. They alternated the ketamine with the fentanyl. I was really hallucinating. At one point, he thought he was being carried up the stairs. He hallucinated that the paramedics had somehow freed his leg. When I was clear, I knew that leg was coming off, Old Father said. I'm pretty sure I was begging for them to just cut it off. Old Father saw Ahmed and McGonagall arrive. By that time, I think I was cracking jokes, Old Father said. I remember I looked at one of those doctors, McGonagall, and thought I recognized him. I said, dude, you're the guy who delivered my daughter. He just tried to talk to me. The last thing I remember was they put a gas mask over my face. And the next thing I knew, I had a breathing tube down my throat and I was in the hospital. Ahmed and McGonagall were contacted separately around 2.30 p.m. informed about a man trapped in a conveyor belt and the need for a field amputation. They immediately contacted each other and by 2.50 p.m. they were on the road to King's Material. Ahmed and McGonagall rode in a vehicle fully equipped for emergencies like Old Father's predicament. As they made what amounted to a 40-minute drive, they talked about what they knew, and they stayed in contact with Schneckloff and the medic EMS personnel at King's Material. The doctors were briefed and ready. There was just one catch. While McGonagall had a sizable number of amputations under his belt, all of those procedures were performed in a clinical setting. I had never done an amputation in the field, McGonagall said. The circumstances down in what amounted to a dark shaft were austere. The challenge is trying to keep things sterile, keep things clean. There was the challenge of space and access to instruments. Despite the lack of in-the-field experience, the surgical team of Ahmed and McGonagall had been preparing for an on-site amputation for more than a year. We had actually sat down and talked about this exact scenario, McGonagall said, and we were trained on these scenarios we were prepared and ready. After eight days in Iowa City, where his left knee was removed, Old Father was released from the hospital Friday and soon will begin rehabilitation. I'm ready, Old Father said. I was walking the floor at the hospital one day after my last surgery. I'm ready to get on with this. From there, we'll go to another uh, 
state, local article. Aid squirts glue into residents' eye at troubled Iowa care facility from Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. An Iowa nursing home with a history of serious regulatory violations may be facing federal penalties for squirting fingernail glue into a resident's eye. According to state inspectors, a male resident of the Aspire of Gowrie Care Facility in Webster County approached a nurse aide in the dining room of the home during the evening of November 11, 2022. The man handed the aide a small bottle he had picked up from his bedside table and asked the aide to help him with his eye drops. Without first confirming the contents of the bottle, the aide began administering fluid from the bottle to the resident's eye. The resident immediately complained of pain and burning, at which point the aide looked at the bottle and saw that she had placed fingernail glue into the man's eye. A team of emergency medical technicians was summoned to the home and flushed the resident's eye for at least 25 minutes, at which point the man's eyelids broke apart, inspectors reported. In the meantime, the nurse aide who had mistakenly put the glue into the resident's eye left the facility because her shift had ended. According to inspectors, she was overheard talking on the phone as she left the building saying, you wouldn't believe what just happened. Boy, it sure hurt when the fingernail glue was placed into my right eye, the man later told state inspectors. He reportedly stated that while his doctor had assured him his eye wouldn't bother him forever, he continued to have blurry vision. He told inspectors he had no idea why there was fingernail glue on his bedside table, but added that he felt sure one of the workers must have left it there. The Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals cited the home for 15 state and federal regulatory violations, including failure to meet professional standards, failure to offer activities to meet residents' needs, failure to employ competent nursing staff, failure to prevent significant medication errors, inadequate infection control, and inadequate COVID-19 testing and supplies. DIA fined the facility $5,250 for failing to keep residents safe, then tripled that amount because it was the second serious safety violation during the past 12 months. The fine was then held in suspension so that the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services could determine what penalties, if any, to impose. As of Wednesday, CMS had yet to report taking any action against the home. With regard to the COVID-19 issues, an unvaccinated worker told inspectors she was tasked with caring for a COVID-positive resident, but that she and her colleagues could not find any of the required masks for staff to wear. She called and texted the home's director of nursing, but never received a response, she said. And so she and colleague uh, wound up caring for the resident without the required masks, placing herself and the residents she subsequently cared for at risk. Two workers at the home, subsequently tested positive for COVID-19, according to inspectors. The home was also cited for failing to test residents and staff for COVID-19 even after one resident had tested positive. The director of nursing told inspectors that she believed, contrary to federal regulations, that one new case of COVID-19 did not constitute an outbreak. And from there, we will continue. Um... Mason City Airport, unaffected by computer crash. And again, it's just taking a second to load up the tab. Uh, From Matthew Razab of the Globe Gazette. Mason City Municipal Airport staff and passengers were largely unaffected by the Federal Aviation Administration's ground stop order after an outage in a government system 
caused thousands of flights to be delayed or canceled across the country on Wednesday. Pilots are required to check the system known as the Notice to Air Mission System, N-O-T-A-M, before takeoff. It lists potential adverse impacts on flights from one-ray construction to the potential for ice for icing. The system was formerly telephone-based with pilots calling dedicated flight service stations for the information, but it has moved online. Airport manager David Sims said Mason City does use NOTAM, but there were no commercial flights in or out Wednesday morning. Fortunately, there's no snow on the runway today, so we're in pretty good shape. And as far as I know, our airline flights are running on time, he said. The advantage is right now we don't have any scheduled flights in the morning. Had we had morning flights, those may have been impacted. The United Flight to Chicago, scheduled for 126 Wednesday, took off on schedule. Former Waldorf University soccer player Daniel Burko said he was happy his flight was on time, but he had layovers in Chicago and Houston before ending up in Nashville. I hope this flight stays on time, Burko said a couple hours before takeoff. I'm a little worried about my connecting flights being delayed or canceled because of the NOTAM software crash. Sims agreed Burko could have issues after leaving Mason City. That's the only problem, Sims said. When you have a disruption early in the day, it kind of backs up down the line to get aircraft and crews to complete their schedules as planned. According to the Associated Press, the White House initially said that there was no evidence of cyber attack behind the outage that ruined travel plans for millions of passengers. President Joe Biden said Wednesday morning that he's directed the Department of Transportation to investigate. The NOTAM system breakdown Late Tuesday led to more than 1,000 flight cancellations and more than 6,000 delayed flights by 11 a.m. Wednesday, according to the flight tracking website, FlightAware. Next article from Matthew Rezab again of the Globe Gazette. Cerro Gordo County Court accepts guilty plea in November shooting. A Mason City man who shot another man with the victim's gun in November pleaded guilty to attempted murder in Cerro Gordo County District Court on Tuesday. According to court records, the court accepted the plea of 24-year-old Stephen Allen Tidemanson that was negotiated with the county attorney. Under the terms of the plea, Tidemanson would, by law, serve at least 70% of a 25-year sentence for the forcible felony of attempted murder in exchange for first-degree theft and first-degree robbery charges being dropped. Cerro Gordo County Attorney Carlisle Dalen said the sentence would be served concurrently with another burglary charge that has not yet been filled out, been filed by Tide Manson, rather, is aware of. The charges stem from an incident that occurred around 8 p.m. November 28, 2022. Tide Manson was in an altercation with another male in the 300 block of 3rd Street Northwest around 7.55 p.m. when he took a 9mm handgun from the victim and then used it to shoot him in the upper chest. A press release from the Mason City Police Department stated that Tide Manson fled the scene that night. Warrants were issued for his arrest, and he was apprehended around 1.50 p.m. the next day in the 300 block of 1st Street Southwest. The handgun also was retrieved at the time. A sentencing hearing is scheduled for February the 20th. The court is not obligated to accept the terms of the plea arrangement. 
another article coming up here. It's taking a second to load. This is entitled, I Thought We Were Going to Die. Quad Cities residents recount Sunday's I-80 pileup from Tom Lowry. Rachel Zimmerman and her 17-year-old daughter Ava were up before dawn Sunday. They planned to leave their Sherrard, Illinois home at 4.45 a.m. and take Interstate 80 to the Six-Pack Club Volleyball Tournament in Cedar Falls. Ava was to play with the Platform Elite Volleyball Club. Rachel initially thought about taking Ava's 2005 Lexus, a small SUV, that gets better gas mileage than her 2017 Chevy Suburban. For some reason, I don't know why I chose the Suburban, Rachel said. I'm glad I did. The choice may have saved their lives. Within an hour of leaving Sherrard, the Zimmermans were involved in what the Iowa State Patrol described in a crash report Sunday as a 16-vehicle pileup that left two people dead and others injured. All told, nine semi-trucks were involved in the accident. About 50 minutes into the Zimmerman's drive, just after entering Iowa City, Ava was trying to catch some sleep in the front passenger seat. A dense fog had descended across the road, and Rachel saw what she thought was a huge barrier stretching across all three westbound lanes of I-80. I screamed for Ava to wake up, and I started pumping the brakes, Rachel said. I didn't know it, but there was an overturned semi in the road, or two semis. I'm still not sure. We were just sliding sliding toward this barrier in the road, and I managed to get the steering wheel turned enough so that we headed right down into a ditch. The next thing I knew, the airbags had gone off, and the OnStar voice was talking to us, and our iPhones were dialing 911. It was dark, and there was airbag dust in the air, and we had run into a semi that had flipped into the ditch. What Rachel didn't know at the time was later explained by the Iowa State Patrol. About 5.30 a.m., Sunday, the roads around mile marker 246 and the Dodge Street exit became ice-covered. Fog had frozen and was sticking to the roadway. A semi lost control and jackknife blocking all three westbound lanes. The semi caused a chain reaction accident. In a matter of minutes, maybe seconds, more than a dozen were involved. One struck the semi's trailer, which led to the death of 57-year-old David Mozinski. A passenger in the semi got out of the vehicle after the initial crash and was killed as a result, police said. The passenger was 37-year-old Junior Caballero Verneo. Members of four other Bettendorf-based Platform Elite Volleyball Club teams also were en route to the tourney in Cedar Falls Sunday morning. Four vehicles carrying club members were involved in the crash, said club director Melissa Kurth. None of the players or their family members were seriously injured, but there were some minor injuries, and I'm afraid they saw some things. It was a very hard day. Platform elite coaches Alex Batten, 27, and Jenna Laxon, 25, intended to travel from the Quad Cities to the tournament with two other coaches. They left around 5 a.m. and hit the pile up just seconds after Ava and Rachel Zimmerman. It had gotten foggy, but there was no indication that there was anything wrong, Batten said. We were coming up to the Dodge Street exit, and all of a sudden, out of the fog, it seemed like there were cop cars coming at us. Then I realized there were trucks everywhere and there were cars piled up. Batten swerved between the wreckage while Laxton spoke calmly and tried to reassure her. I wasn't really driving, Batten said. We were just sliding. 
And then we slid over a section of a tractor trailer and we finally stopped. I don't know if any of us knew what happened. Then we looked behind us and things got worse. We stopped and I turned around and there was another semi sliding toward us, Laxton said. I had my phone in my hand and I sent a quick text to my parents saying, I love you because I thought we were going to die. I thought that semi and other cars were just going to pile up on us. Somehow, Batten's car didn't sustain any damage. Not a single scratch, Batten said. We were able to drive around the main semi and we drove to the next exit and we sat inside of Brugger's Bagels. Then we started texting and calling all the players, warning them to turn back. While Batten and Laxton were able to leave the scene, the Zimmermans and family members of three other platform elite players found themselves in the middle of fearsome landscape. It was still dark when we got out of the suburban. Ava and I scrambled to the other side of the ditch, Rachel Zimmerman said. You could hear the sound of the cars running over the debris and crashing into the semis. We heard that horrible sound of the cars hitting the semis, maybe five or six times. Then it went quiet, eerily quiet. And then came... Well, I apologize. Uh, A semi full of mail must have wrecked because there was all these packages and letters all over, she said, and there were cans everywhere. It was like a bomb had gone off. Eventually, the Zimmermans found other players and families from the Platform Elite Club. They were taken to a hotel that overlooks the accident scene. We were there for about three hours before the Iowa State Patrol troopers came and questioned us, Rachel said. One man broke down there. I think it was all too much. I think I was in shock. Other people, too. One of the hotel guests relayed a story to Rachel. He said he woke up and it was dark and it sounded like it was thundering outside. He said he woke up his wife to listen to the thunder and she told him there was no way it was storming. He opened up his curtains and they were looking at the accident as it happened. I know I'm struggling to process the things I saw. I don't think anyone who saw what happened will ever forget it. From there, we will move on to our local obituaries, um, beginning with Don Elridge. Don, formerly Clausen Eldridge, age 49, of Neola, Iowa, passed away on Sunday, January 8th. Don was born November 27, 1973, to the late Fred and Linda Clausen in Moline, Illinois. She grew up in Mason City, where she obtained her bachelor's degree while living there. Dawn relocated to Neola when she accepted a management position at Menards and Shelby. She later worked for Jack Links, Diamond Oil and FedEx. Survivors are sons William and Alan Eldridge of Fort Dodge, Hunter Lee Thompson of Columbus, Nebraska, and brother Bruce Clausen of Virginia Beach, Virginia. Charlotte May Feltz, age 89, beloved mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, passed away on January the 6th, peacefully snuggled in her bed at home, surrounded by her children. Charlotte was born on February 7th, 1933, in Lyle, Minnesota, to Nordahl and Lenore Nelson. After graduating from high school in 1951, Charlotte attended Luther College. She married Donald Feltz on October 15th, 1960, at Queen of Angels in Austin, Minnesota, and had two children, Bradley and Rebecca. 
She centered her life around family, friends, faith, and all things sweet. They made their home in Osage. During those years, Charlotte enjoyed raising her children, spending time with family and many friends. She also enjoyed her time working at Dee's Jewelry and rarely brought home a paycheck because she loved all things that sparkled. Charlotte enjoyed gardening, canning, baking, and spending time on the acreage, the river road, with her sweet dogs, King and Cuddles. She enjoyed having coffee with her girlfriends, playing cards with her car club group, going up north with her family, and day trip adventures. Shopping and finding a good deal, going to rummage sales, attending concerts and the theater, and doing Hardinger were her favorite pastimes. She will be deeply missed by her family and friends. She is survived by her children, Bradley Feltz of Lake Elmo and Rebecca Stevenson of Chanhassen, Minnesota. Charlotte's Celebration of Life will be held at 11 a.m. on Thursday, January 12th at Clayson Jordan Mortuary, 209 2nd Avenue Northwest, Austin, Minnesota, with Reverend Scott Meyer officiating. Visitation will begin at 10 a.m. and the luncheon will follow the service. Burial will be held at a later date on a sunny day in the spring of the Sacred Heart Cemetery in Osage. In remembrance of Charlotte's life, memorials can be made in her name to Minnesota Humane Society or Mayo Clinic Hospice. Our next obituary, just starting to load up, Norris Kenneth Anderson, who passed away December 31st. Uh, a funeral service for Nori will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Friday. January the 6th, there are two more obituaries, and for whatever reason, so I think what we'll do is we'll move on to sports. Dr. Lyle D. Biley, born in Albert Lee on November the 8th, 1936, to Delavan and Thelma Biley. Lyle graduated from the University of Minnesota with a BS in pharmacy in 1960, MS in hospital pharmacy from the University of Iowa in 1963, and a Ph.D. in physical pharmacy from the College of Pharmacy at the University of Iowa in 1966. Lyle worked in the pharmaceutical industry at Park Davis in Detroit, Michigan, and at 3M in St. Paul, Minnesota. Dr. Biley was on the faculty at the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy for eight years in August 1977. When an opportunity to work for Ewing Kaufman at Marion Laboratories in Kansas City, Lyle moved his family to Kansas and enjoyed a busy and rewarding career in the research and development area of Marion Laboratories. Lyle retired as senior vice president from Marion Merrill Dow in 1991. Dr. Biley published his research in several scientific journals. He was awarded membership in the Honorary Society of Roche Fraternity. He was given the Burroughs Welcome Fellowship Award. He was also given the Distinguished Alumnus Award and the Osterhaus Lifetime Achievement Medal by the University of Iowa College of Pharmacy. Dr. Biley is a member of the President's Club at the University of Iowa and a member of the Heritage Club at the University of Minnesota. He was preceded in death by his daughter, Beth Biley Tillotson, and his father and mother, Delavan and Thelma Biley of Albert Lee, Minnesota. Lyle Biley married Sharon Olson at the First Congregational Church in Osage, Iowa, on June 14, 1959. They lived in Minnesota, Iowa, Michigan, and Kansas. Lyle was active in the aviation community and was the first president of the Kansas Aviation Council formed in 1999. Lyle and Sharon enjoyed many years of travel and enjoyed flying in their 182 Cessna airplane. Dr. Biley was a former faculty member at the University of Iowa, was an active alumnus for the College of Pharmacy at both the University of Iowa and the University of Minnesota. 
Funeral at 11 in the morning on Thursday, January the 12th at McGilly State Line Chapel in Kansas City. Memorials can be sent to the Ascend Hospice, 4550 West 109th Street, Suite 210 Overland Park, Kansas 66211, or to the Heartland, the Parkinson's Foundation at 13451 Briar Street, Suite 202 in Leewood, Kansas. Spencer Boyd, 30, passed away unexpectedly on January the 5th in Mason City. A celebration of life will be held 1030 Thursday, January the 12th at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel with Pastor Katie Cellino officiating in Ernman will be held in Clear Lake Cemetery at a later date. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 Wednesday, January the 11th at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel in Mason City. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Spencer was born on April 12, 1992 in Mason City, the son of Jasper and Shelley Boyd. He attended North Springs School and graduated from Central Springs High School's class of 2010. Spencer attended training school at NASCAR Tech in Mooresville, North Carolina. He worked many construction jobs, and most recently he worked at Dean Snyder Construction as a foreman. In his spare time, Spencer enjoyed racing go-karts and worked on a pit crew on the Budweiser circuit one summer. In his younger years, he was active in wrestling and cross-country. He liked fishing, fishing, listening to music, and going to raves. Animals had a soft place in his heart, always taking in the strays. Spencer's favorite thing to do was riding motorcycles and four-wheelers with his son, Kasten. He always said that Kasten was his greatest accomplishment. Spencer loved big, and his love will be greatly missed. Those left to cherish memories of Spencer are his son, Kasten James Boyd, parents Shelley Boyd, Jasper Boyd, siblings Parker Boyd and Stephanie Moss, and Kenzie Hanna, niece and nephews, many aunts, uncles, cousins, and friends. Spencer is preceded in death by his grandparents, Herbert and Amy Webner, Jasper Sr., and Mary Boyd, Uncle Mike Boyd, and many pets that went before him. With that, we'll go ahead and we'll move to our sports, and we'll begin with some uh, roundup from Tuesday's high school, Lake Millset Conference Mark, and Clear Lake Dominates. Lake Mills set a new top of Iowa conference record with its 41st consecutive conference victory with a 65-52 win over West Hancock in boys' basketball action. Denton Kingland poured in 21 points, and Eli Menke had 20. Lance Helming joined them in double figures with 10 and grabbed 10 rebounds, while Aiden Stensred had 7 points and 14 rebounds. Logan Bankin and Menke each had 5 assists. The Bulldogs improved to 10-0 overall and 8-0 in the TOI. Des Moines Lincoln 62 over Mason City 40. The rail splitters took control early and the Riverhawks never managed to fight their way back in it as they dropped their second straight game Tuesday. Mason City trailed 34-18 at the half. Kale Hobart had 16 points and Davian Maxwell chipped in 12. Thursday, we had a great or a real energetic and competitive game, and I think it impacted us today. And we traveled again and just made it tough to create that same energy we needed tonight, Riverhawk head coach Nick Trask said. Number three, Clear Lake 67 over Nevada 50. The Lions connected on 50% of their field goal attempts as they handed the 10th-ranked Cubs just their second loss of the season. 
Clear Lake, 9-0, took a 10-point lead after the first quarter, 21-11, but that was trimmed to just three through three quarters, 47-44, before the Lions put Nevada away in the fourth quarter. Javon Luobia had 22, and Thomas Meyer 21 to pace Clear Lake. Meyer, had, Meyer added 12 rebounds and four steals, while Luobia had 11 assists. Garner Hayfield, Ventura, 69 over North Iowa, 46. The Cardinals snapped a three-game losing streak by using big first and third quarters to take down the Bison. In the first and third quarters, Garner Hayfield, Ventura, outscored North Iowa, 45-21. Four different Cardinal players reached double figures. Braden Benke, Drew Britson, Cale Johnson, and Mason Graham. Benke added seven assists and three steals. Northwood Kensett, 49 over North Butler, 42. After losing their first six games of the season, the Vikings have scored back-to-back wins on back-to-back nights. Colby Eskelson had 17 points, while Cooper Jolseth and Carter Anderson each had 11 to lead NK. Evan Lorenzen pulled down nine rebounds. Nashua Plains Field, 65 over Rockford, 29. Nick Groven had 15 points for the Warriors, but the Huskies used a huge first half to take control of the game and the victory. NP led 39-19 at the half. In girls basketball, Mason City 70 over Des Moines Lincoln 33. In a game moved to Norwalk, the Riverhawks got 24 points, 8 rebounds, 5 steals, and 4 assists from Reggie Spots to earn the win. A bit of a slow start, but we picked up the defense and used better ball movement to create great shots, Riverhawk head coach Kirk Lawson said. We appreciate Norwalk opening up their school so that we could get the game in. Grace Burning had 10 points and 6 rebounds, and Michaela Trask added 8 points and 3 steals. Clear Lake 58 over Nevada 24. The Lions won their sixth game in a row to improve to 8-2 overall. Jordan Maryland led all scores with 14 points, while Brooklyn Eden and Zeta Johnson scored 11-10 respectively. Johnson added seven rebounds, four assists, and four steals. Reese Brownlee had eight points, four assists, and three steals. Northwood Kensett, 39 over North Butler, 27. Chloe Costello scored 13 points, and Morgan Whalen had 12 as the Vikings scored a 12-point win. Nashua Plainfield, 53 over Rockford, 14. Ashlyn Grady led the Warriors with six points as Rockford could not keep pace with the Huskies. West Hancock 47 over Lake Mills 39. The Eagles won their third game in four to even their record at 5-5. Five and five. Mallory Learer had 11 points and Shelby Gopal 10 to lead. West Hancock in scoring. Learer also had eight rebounds, five steals, and four assists. Gardner Hayfield Ventura 53 over North Iowa 31. Jenna Pringnitz had 20 points and four steals for the Cardinals. And Greta Gouge also had a huge game with 12 points and 15 rebounds. Finally, Central Springs 37 over St. Ansgar 35 in overtime. In tight game throughout, the Panthers had the final answer to squeeze out the victory and snap a four-game Saints win streak. In boys swimming, Marshalltown 63 over Mason City 30. The 200 medley relay team of Will Reed, Brody Lead, Brody Hirsch, and Ryan Hinson took home first to highlight the Riverhawks' night. Michael Johnson took second in the 53, losing by 0.01 seconds. Overall, Mason City produced 41 season best times in the meet. Mason City returns to the pool Thursday at Des Moines East. 
Um, here's an article about the uh, Heisman Trophy winner, USC running back Charles White passes away. Southern Cal running back and 1979 Heisman Trophy winner Charles White died Wednesday after a battle with cancer. He was 64. White died in Newport Beach, California, the school said in an obituary. White led USC to the 1978 national title with a 42-6-1 record in four years. He was inducted into the USC Athletic Hall of Fame in 1995 and the College Football Hall of Fame in 1996. He was the toughest player I've ever coached, said John Robinson, White's former coach at USC and in the NFL with the Los Angeles Rams. He was really unusual in that regard. He was a great player and just loved playing the game. Those are the things I remember the most. He was a really tough guy. And he was an extremely gifted athlete. But the toughness, wow. White remains USC's career rushing leader with 6,245 yards. He scored 49 career touchdowns for the Trojans. He rushed for 2,050 yards in 1979, tops in the nation, en route to winning the Heisman. White was selected number 27 overall by the Cleveland Browns in the 1980 draft and went on to rush for 3,075 yards and 23 touchdowns in an eight-year career with the Browns and Rams. Here in Pro Bowl and first-team All-Pro honors in 1987, when he led the league with 1,374 yards, rushing and 11 touchdowns. White returned to USC in 1990 as a special assistant to the athletic director. In 1993, USC made him an assistant coach in charge of running backs, a position he held through 1997. Stolke steps up in Hawkeye route. This from Steve Batterson in Iowa City. As Caitlin Clark flirted with another triple-double Wednesday, the Iowa All-American was upstaged by a teammate. Freshman Hannah Stolke more than demonstrated her abilities as the 12th-ranked Hawkeyes rolled to a 93-64 victory over Northwestern at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. Now filling the role as Iowa's primary backup at the power forward and post positions, the 6'2 Cedar Rapids Washington product scored a career-high 17 points, fell one shy of a career-high with nine rebounds, dished out two assists, and held a steal in 14 and a half minutes of action. Stuhlke posted up and scored in the block. She fought for rebounds, she swiped an inbounds pass, and raced to the other end of the court for a layup. I just tried to come and be a little spark, Stuhlke said. Today, we got off a little bit of a slow start, but once we got rolling, we were rolling. Against the Wildcats, Stuhlke provided that spark with an 11-point second quarter, which helped Iowa grow a 22-16 lead after one quarter, grow to 47-32 at halftime. Stolke could only think of one thing she didn't do. I didn't dunk. I'm saving that for later, Stolke said. That aside, Stolke's efforts, energy, and athleticism caught the attention of the crowd of 8,384, which roared when she returned to the bench. She's been tremendous. She's a great player, Clark said. But I think right now her teammates believe in her more than she believes in herself. When you see the potential she has, see what she can do, how athletic she is, it's great. She likes to play the game fast, and I love to play with teammates like that. Iowa coach Lisa Bluter believes the best is yet to come. Everybody can see what an amazing athlete she is and how good of a basketball player she is, Bluter said. We initially planned to play her only at the power forward, but now we're using her at the, as the first player in at two spots as she's doing a great job. It was Stolke who led the ball 
who fed the ball to Gabby Marshall for a three-point basket with six minutes, 53 seconds remaining in the first half that gave Iowa a 32-22 advantage, a double-digit margin the Hawkeyes maintained for the rest of the game. Clark led four Hawkeyes in double figures with and missed sorry, the eighth triple-double of her career by one rebound, finishing with 20 points, 14 assists, and nine boards. As Iowa grew its lead to 72-47 after three quarters and 81-50 on a basket by McKenna Warnock with six minutes, three seconds to play in the game, Bluter pulled her starters. Clark did return briefly later in the quarter in an attempt to chase down one more rebound, but Northwestern scored on three possessions. Iowa answered, and the ball didn't fall Clark's way on a couple of misses before she exited the game. A triple-double is such a special thing. I thought if she could get it, great, Bluter said. So we gave her the chance. On a night when Monica Cisnano scored 18 points and Warnock added 10, Clark's inability to collect one last rebound was about the only disappointment of the night from Bluter's perspective. From a 59.3% shooting for the game to his 27 assists on 35 baskets and his 52-32 edge and points in the paint, Bluter found a lot to like about the follow-up performance by Iowa to Saturday's win at then number 14, Michigan. That's back-to-back complete games for us, which makes me feel good, Bluter said. This time of year, you want to see your team put together some consistently like that. It took Iowa some time to get going. The Wildcats forced some early turnovers by the Hawkeyes, but back-to-back three-point baskets by Clark in the final 121 of the first quarter broke a 16-16 deadlock and left Northwestern playing from behind the remainder of the game. Kaylee Walsh led the Wildcats with a 22-point effort. Another big test awaits Hawkeyes' Rebraca from Iowa City. Another game, another challenge. Philippe Rebraca faces another big test Thursday when the Iowa basketball team hosts Michigan, lining up across from the Wolverines' 7'1", Hunter Dickinson. Michigan's junior post player is the latest in a series of premier Big Ten men the Hawkeyes' undersized center has dealt with in recent games. This three-game stretch had been really hard. Chris Murray and I have talked about it and a three-game gauntlet against some of the big men in the league, Rebraca said Wednesday. Rebraca had dealt effectively with the challenge he has faced in Iowa's last two games, Indiana's Trace Jackson Davis last Thursday and Rutgers center Clifford Omroy on Sunday. He was on the court for 38 minutes against the Hoosiers and played all 40 minutes in the Hawkeyes' win over the Scarlet Knights. Rebraca added to his team leading collection of six double-doubles in each game while scoring in double figures for the fifth time in six games. Coach Fran McCaffrey said Rebraca's total game from his shooting to his defense to his passing and the decisions he makes have made it difficult to take Rebraca out of the lineup on the floor. He has been so locked in and focused on what we are doing that we've needed him, McCaffrey said. With Josh Ogunduli missing the past two games with a knee injury, McCaffrey's inside options have been limited. Ideally, he'd like to play Rebraca around 35 minutes per game and give him a breather coordinated around media timeouts to ensure that he stays fresh. Uh, College men's basketball, number 14, Iowa State, goes to an 84-50 win over Texas Tech. Iowa State guard Taman Lipsy definitely dropped the bounce pass behind his back. Teammate Gabe Kalshore calmly gathered it in at the top of the key, watched the defender fly by, set his feet, and hoisted the long-range shot. The result? 
one of many swishes Tuesday for Kyle Shore, who scored 25 points to help the number 14 Cyclones trample Texas Tech 84-50 before a crowd of 13,464 at Hilton Coliseum. I'm putting the work in and I'll continue to put the work in, said Kyle Shore, who shot 10 for 14 overall and 5 for 6 from three-point range while adding a season high and team best seven rebounds. I'm just going to trust in that. And in Lipsy, a true freshman who starts alongside four seniors who universally have dubbed him the floor general. And with that, I'll go ahead and sign off for today, January the 12th. Again, my name has been Ben Stein, and it has been a pleasure reading for you for Iris, uh, the Mason City Globe Gazette, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Thank you.